Well, firstly, I'd like to uh, just mention that uh, how, what a delight it's been for me to, to be in the company of this retreat, to be with everyone here um, sharing this inquiry um, and this space together. Um, I've just been delighting in the quality of communal consciousness that's available here at Spirit Rock and all that people contribute to make that so and what it evokes for me, which is a sense of blessedness. Um, And also feeling that very much um, for us both, being able to work with you, Eugene, it's been also really um, a blessing. Thank you. Tonight I want to try and draw a few strands together around this theme of the Brahma Vihara, the abiding in the health of the heart, the completion of the heart, um, the radiance of the heart. And I want to enter into it through a doorway which um, for me in my practice has been perhaps the most important paradigm that I've contemplated over the years, which is the the Four Noble Truths. Not all of those truths, because that's a very full teaching, but some aspects of it as a doorway into this quality of heartfulness. Uh, And in many ways, one can see that the Buddha's teaching is like a hologram. It's all there, present, and in its vastness, and its completeness, and its complexity, and its simplicity, and its beauty. And it's more a question of almost like pulling little pieces out and allowing them to, to be illuminated. But it's not, to, not in a way that um, dismisses the other aspects. So it's all there. Once you touch into one teaching, you start to open and enter the doorways of the others, other aspects of the, of the way of awakening. Um, by way of introduction to this, these aspects that I would like to draw from, from the four truths, I'd, I'd like to begin with a, with a quote from the Sutta Napata, which is the, the earliest uh, recording, um, one of the earliest recordings in the Theravada school of the Buddha's words. And this is from uh, one of the last chapters in the Sutta Napata, which are the questions of 16, I think it's 16, Brahmin students that come to dialogue with the Buddha. And the languaging of it is very beautiful and the way that they ask, you can feel just in the way they approach the Buddha. They almost approach him like one would approach a lover, actually. It's got that feeling of devotion and, and warmth and, and beauty in it. And so just to, when I read the question, just to enjoy the languaging of it because it's, it's, very, it's, it's, it's um, very evocative of a sort of the quality of relationship that the, Buddha, that the Buddha drew towards himself when there was this devotion and openness and inquiry. This question is from the Brahmin student Jatukani. I have heard, he said, Jatukani said, that there is an ocean crosser, a hero desiring the desireless. And so I have come to ask a question of this man without desire. Tell me this, Eye of instant seeing knowing. What is the state of peace? Please explain this to me as it really is. You, Master, 
Rule desire and pleasure like the sun with heat and light rules and controls the earth. I have only a little understanding, sir, and you are a globe of wisdom. Tell me how to find and know the way of giving up this world of births and deaths. So you can get the beauty in the, in the way he's come to the Buddha and the questioning and the way he's um, receiving the quality of the Buddha. The Buddha replied to Jatukani, Lose the greed for pleasure, Jatukani. See how letting go of this world is peacefulness. There is nothing that you need to hold on to, and there is nothing that you need to push away. Dry up the remains of your past and have nothing for your future. If you do not cling even to the present, then you can go from place to place in peace. There is a greed that fixes on an individual. When that greed has completely gone, then, Brahmin, there will be no more inner poisonous drives without which you will be immune from death. Lose the greed for pleasure. This is uh, interesting. This is where I'd like to open the door to begin our inquiry into this heart of the Brahma-Vihara. This notion, not necessarily of a judgment of pleasure, but the greed for it, the grasping for it, the seeking for something that we don't feel we already have. In this second noble truth of the Buddha, he talks about this tendency that we have, or the heart has, to seek um, but often the seeking sometimes coming from a place of the, the quality of seeking in the Second Noble Truth is more, not so much from the health of inquiry, but from the, sometimes the sense of lack, not being full enough, needing something more, not being enough. Somehow the heart not knowing its own fullness or its own luminous, timeless, transcendent and intimate presence which is a fullness in itself, and not being nourished by that, there's a sense within the heart of it needing something more. We don't know, we, the heart doesn't recognize its own nature. The mind or the jitta doesn't recognize its own nature. And so there's this sense of something that we, we need that's more, something that we're looking for. And this is felt as, as a, a movement into becoming something, a sense of self, a sense of meanness that needs to become something other than I am. And this the, the Buddha called Bhavatanha, the thirst or the, the drive or the, the movement to become other, to become something more. Of course, that, that can have within it a, a positive aspect, but we're looking at more at the, the aspect of it that becomes compulsive and maybe even driven and and ironically dislocates us from a sense of centeredness. So this, this sense of needing to absorb or to become is part of this movement or this energy of tanha, the greed or the desiring or the thirsting that's unconscious often and, and motivates, can motivate our activity, our way of being in, in, in ourselves, in our, in our lives and in the world around us. Or looking the other aspect or the twin of that, kamatanha, which means more 
the needing to feel completeness through some contact in the sensory world. So maybe through a sight or a sound or a feeling or a touch. But this scanning, and it's not the health of that where we can have contact and maybe feel a moment of fullness or true pleasure, but it's this more, this, this, uh, this sense of, of scanning the sensory world for the hit, the something that will complete us, and then the frustration when, it, when we can't hold on. Uh, and then we're left more vacuous than full. And, and looking for the next hit, the next buzz, the next. And so these two forms, these, these, and then when we feel in the sense of self, how we get shaped and moved by this quality, that's how we often feel ourselves to be, not so much in our completeness, but feel ourselves in this mode of becoming something else. And the very nature of this, the Buddha called, is the, the, the essence of this, and the underlying uncertainty within that process, the, the fragility of it, as we're trying to find a sense of home and completion through this process of being driven in that way, is, is the essence of that is this experience of what the Buddha called sangsara, this feeling of wandering, moving, seeking, looking, but never quite finding home. And then when we get enough of that, or we get burnt, or we... We, we feel we can't quite fill our fullness through that, those unconscious movements and drives, and we can get the whippoor tanha, the other third stream of, of tanha or thirsting, which is the feeling of, of lack or self-depreciation um, or wanting not to exist or wanting not contact or wanting to disappear or it's too difficult and so we don't want to actually even be here. And so these are movements of the way that the, the, the minds and the cheetah, the heart's energy can move and, and shape, be shaped. The sense of self gets shaped and moves in the world. And when it's very unconscious, there's nothing wrong with those energies. It's just when they're unconscious and when they're not illuminated, then it leaves us often feeling fractured or dis, dis, dislocated. And so this second noble truth, the the Buddha advised, we just need to awaken. We don't need to repress uh, this movement of tanha. We don't need to get rid of it. We don't need to, you know, um, try and... We need, actually, the the energy, once it's transformed, we need that energy. But first of all, we need to awaken to it, to see it for what it is, to see that it's not actually what we are. On one level, that's not what we are. And so this, this, the Buddha advised on this second noble truth to really get to know the movement of tanha as it operates and to, to let it be was his, the medicine for that, to, to let it go, to let it be so that we can begin to recognize something that remains when we're not being moved and shaped by those unconscious drives and becomings. When we are then the sign, the very sure sign that we'll experience is the experience of dukkha, the first noble truth, the sense of agitation, frustration, unsatisfactoriness, incompletion. Dukkha, literally meaning do one translation, do apart from akash, the spacious or the perfect. The feeling of always never quite being whole, being pulled apart into something 
needing, wanting, seeking. So dukkha is in a way a friend because once that emerges, that sense of that quality of, of, of uh, unsatisfactoriness, suffering, then we have a sure sign that there's something that we haven't seen quite clearly yet, something that we can be revealed to us, somewhere that we're grasping, holding in a way that's unconscious. And once we contract that back and say, well, Ajahn Chah put it very simply, he said if there's dukkha, then in this moment there's usually wanting and not wanting operating in the mind unconsciously. You want something that's not here and you don't want what's here. It's very simple at that level. And so once those become conscious, we just say, ah, it's like this, and it allows a release from those patternings. And then what we become released, what we released into, what we let go into is this third noble truth that the Buddha illuminated. We literally allow ourselves to feel what is it when we're not grasping, when we're not reaching and lurching into the future, when we're not pushing away what's present, what remains when there's a relaxation and an opening. So this third noble truth begins to induct us or introduce us into the innate peacefulness that's always present, the nature of the heart itself, the the innate completeness or fullness of the heart. However, there is there is a journey between the second and the third noble truth. There is a, a territory. You know, sometimes what happens when people meditate is that there can be the experience of, of releasing of, of what we felt to be ourselves, uh, and, but we don't quite know what we're letting go into. And so there can be a sort of a wobbliness or a anxiety or doubts we don't, we don't, haven't arrived home yet. We don't really, we're not really rooted. The heart's not really confident yet in its own nature. And this sometimes in a spiritual language is talked about maybe as the dark night of the soul or the, you know, the, the wilderness, the territory between what we've felt ourselves to be and then the home base, the home territory. And so it's important to, to know that this movement from the second to the third noble truth isn't just a finger snap. Maybe there are moments when there's an opening and, and peacefulness, but there is also, also a territory there that we need to negotiate and become familiar with and learn how to, to be present with when what emerges isn't peacefulness but is, is, is a sense of constriction or fear or wobbliness or anxiety uh, disorientation, not quite sure how to relate. Well, I'm not relating in quite the same way. I'm not sure where I'm relating from in myself. Maybe that's the old structures that we've related from aren't working so well. We don't quite know how to let go or what we're letting go into. So this is, in a way, in the wilderness or the, the dark night of the soul, or sometimes it's called learning to, in the spiritual language, a a dying process and what's dying away is not necessarily the true heart but the dying away of how we've known ourselves to be you know that's no longer functional 
or the letting go of being shaped by the power of becoming our projects or our aims or ambitions, letting those go, and we don't quite know where we'll land. Will anyone like us? Will, will, we, will we be useful even? We don't quite know where, where that's going to take us. It can be quite scary. And so it's in those places that the, the ability to be really present with our experience is important, to have the strength of mindfulness, to not try and prematurely come to a conclusion or shore up perhaps a sense of insecurity if it arises with a known strategy, a known way of being, but maybe just to allow those shifting sands and lack of solidity, maybe allowing some of that to to be present for us, but knowing we find an anchor in being able to trust our ability to, to be here and now with the breath, with the body, with what is present. So somewhere, sometimes this third noble truth is talked about as non-grasping. It's not. It's a realization. In the third noble truth is really real. Is, is leading us to the realization of what's called nibbana. For all the grandiosity around that word, let's look at it very simply. It literally means the cooling or taking off something that's been hot, a pot. On the fire is often an analogy used in the Buddhist scriptures where there's something burning and hot and you, you take it off and you just allow a cooling. Not a cooling in a, in a, in a cold way, but a cooling in a peaceful way. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an opening into what is present when the heart and the mind are, isn't grasping or pushing away. What remains? What is the suchness? And the Buddha said that the medicine, the medicine for dukkha, the first noble truth, is to turn to it, as we've been encouraging ourselves to do on the retreat, to open to it, to contemplate it, to meet it, to have revealed maybe the underlying pushing and pulling of the tanha, the second noble truth. And when we locate that, the medicine is to release from that, to let it be, to trust, relaxing. But this third noble truth is interesting because in a way it's a very subtle movement or medicine that the Buddha applies for a, for a more complete opening and realization. The, the third noble truth is something that just needs to be recognized. Or the, the heart in its own peaceful, natural state is something that is turned to or recognized or realized, open to. So it's not something to find or something to to grasp or something to, you know, it's, it's ever-present, if you like, just needing to be recognized and turned to. What's this can, what can begin to happen as we have moments of moving into the heart in that, in its, in that mode of its, its own beingness, is sometimes it can feel at first perhaps a little, a little uh, wobbly. We maybe don't trust yet. That's enough. Because very much connected with that, this, this sense of allowing ourselves to actually just to be present without adding anything more, there can be this feeling, well, it's not enough because we're so used to layering on our expression the strategies that we need to negotiate the world with. You know, you know, usually f- functioning through through our, 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 our the realms of thought and memory. 
which has its place. It clearly has its place. But in the meditative way, we're learning about is there a place that we can reside in, we can rest in, and also express from that we can trust, that we can learn to trust. And this is a really important issue, I think, in the the meditative way. And perhaps one of the qualities or one of the tastes of entering this, beginning to enter this third noble truth or entering into the heart ground itself when it's not driven by the unconscious forces of tanha, craving, is the sense of unknowingness almost. What is known is still part of, in some ways, the strategy or the the territory that we've been resting out of or releasing out of. And what we're releasing into is more allowing for an unknowing quality to emerge. We don't know. We don't know necessarily what's going to happen. We don't know what we're going to say. We don't know what to do, perhaps. We can formulate a strategy to to meet our uncertainty. We can cover that sense of uncertainty. But But there's also in the meditation encouragement to enter it more deeply, to explore but to, to have within the unknowingness a quality of knowingness. <laughs> Otherwise, sometimes it can be very vacuous and feel more like a psychological um, sense of, of, of um, lack of holding. It can, it can sort of resonate into some of our perhaps more dispersed or dislocated patterns um, where we don't feel very held. But a true unknowingness has within it a presence that can meet life. It has within it a sense of being able to have a knowingness that we can, sent, we can start to trust. The heart's faculty, the heart's own faculty of knowingness, beingness is another way perhaps of another word we could use. But within that, there is the allowance or the spaciousness of, of not having to know. And, and for parts of us, that's quite scary. So it's a practice to learn to rest into that, to begin to trust that, begin to feel it operating maybe in moments of our life when we come into a situation where we might feel we're layering ourselves with strategies. How am I going to meet this difficult situation? And can feel the fear maybe, the anxiety that can be underneath that. I have to be powerful or I have to be confident or I have to be sure and maybe we might have a moment when we can recognize, I, I don't know. And can I allow myself to be with that? And can I trust that something perhaps even quite delightful might emerge from that space? Un, unpredictable, unpremeditated, fresh, new, something of quality, beauty, of something of appropriateness to the situation. And so when we talk about compassion, one way of, of unfolding into what that may be, it can be a strategy, you know, helping the world, helping you. But it can also perhaps emerge from, I think true compassion really emerges from the place of emptying rather than strategy, allowing an emptying of strategy so that there can be a resonance a meeting and a resonance. 
compassion in a way we could say is the willingness to, to feel with rather than to judge. You know, when we get into our strategies and into our, the distinctions that that can bring about, then that can be, that, that can, that can be functional in a way, that can, that can work, we get things done. But often if there's not a judgment of the other, there might be a judgment of self in that process, a sense of a way that we're not quite in it somehow. And we move up, you know, we don't want to, or, or, or we don't really want to feel into the situation, so we move up into a place that feels comfortable, into the, to the one that's in control, the judge, the critic. Maybe it's very subtle, it might not be very strong sense of judgment, but there's always that sort of double-checking, perhaps, that can come up. But allowing ourselves to resonate, to feel, in a way, with the situation, this is, in a way, from a place of emptying and opening, can perhaps, it's not that you're doing the compassion, it might allow the heart's own capacity for compassion to to, to resonate and respond. And maybe that might be unexpected. We don't know yet how that might appear. It's unknown yet. It's yet to emerge from the wisdom, the innate wisdom, which isn't our ownership, it's not our property, but the innate wisdom that might be able to come forward. There's a lovely quote from a saint, uh, Srinasagadatta, Sagadatta, uh, Indian saint, who many of you I'm sure have, have heard of um, who lived in Bombay, a um, regular family guy, and he, he seemed to have really been very realized, and there were lots of conversations recorded with him, and they're recorded in, in a book called I Am That. I Am That. And one of the things Nisargadatta said in, in his conversation, which I think is very beautiful to, to reflect on in regard to this quality of, of emptying and resonance was, uh, was uh, compassion. Compassion says I am everything and wisdom says I am nothing. nothing. Uh, between these two banks, the life of a saint flows. And so this, this, this wisdom says I am nothing, nothing. I, wisdom says I am nothing is this willingness to, to, to keep releasing from our identities, our roles, our strategies, our, our views, our opinions, our way that we might try and meet life from, through those lenses until we begin to feel that emptying, not in a, not in a vacuous way, not an emptying that's dislocated or cold or disassociated, but an emptying that can perhaps give us a sense of a spaciousness that's connected or inclusive or, or warm or fluid. And from that sense, the self, rather than perhaps being constricted around a pattern, a patterning of my individuality, which, which has its place and its beauty, maybe it might also, there might be a feeling of recognition at some level compassion or the heart is knowing itself as everything. There is nothing ultimately, it's seamless, there's nothing, it's undifferentiated, there's no ultimate, what is it that cuts the world 
you know, the, the, the perceptions or concepts that cuts the world into pieces. Keeps us defended. And, you know, clearly psychologically there, there are issues around that that are positive, but just looking meditatively and dropping to, to another level or lifting to another level, whatever, the, the sense of, of that emptying and the allowing for the emptying to be a fullness, connecting us with a fullness. And both of those are present at the same moment. Sometimes, uh, let's go to, let's have a little help from Rumi here. It's another poem. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still treat every guest honorably. They may be clearing you out for some new delights. The dark thoughts, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So let's just contemplate the visitors, the guests, and being the, uh, the guest master. As if we're in a hotel, we're in a hotel. And here the heart is receiving different guests, different Uh, manifestations that come as we all know and all the shapes and forms and expressions of them and a a lot of what we're with in our meditation is um, it's a residue of our old habits residue of, of what we might call in Buddhist language sankharic material is patternings ways that we've tendencies that we've sort of lent into and generated a lot of energy around, been shaped around, the sense of ourself has been shaped around, has been conditioned with, um, and and eventually become a sort of almost like a solid entity. You know, maybe the feeling of not being very worthwhile, that can be having much sense of self-worth. That's a common one that many of us experience, perhaps, and, and have to work through, conditioned from we know all the stories. And that, you know, maybe that emerges, you know, that, that we took that on board, that conditioning at some early age, and, and it becomes layered at, at, through our own super critic that feeds into that when we self-judge ourselves and... And it becomes stronger and stronger, and we believe it, and 
And the more we believe it, the more juice and the more power it has to control and limit us and so on. And so we all have different shapes and patternings that, 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 that we experience. These are different guests, if you like, different, different visitors that can emerge. And one thing that happens when we start to empty or open is we create space. And sometimes when we create space, it allows things to emerge into that space that have come to visit us, not to haunt us necessarily, though it can feel like that, not to scare us, although it can feel like that, not to repress us, but to be healed, to be released, to be let go of, to be allow those energies to move through and to be shown the light. And so in the, in the meditative process, a lot of, maybe 70%, I don't know, a lot of what we're working with is those, is those old residues, those old ghosts, those old patternings, those old, those old um, well, they feel very new often as well because they're in, rising in the present moment, but those, that momentum of our conditioning, of what's been already put in place. And some of them we meet again. And again, the Buddha said some of these sankharic material is like a line drawn in the water. We might be sitting here and there's a bit of irritation, worry in the mind. And we, oh, I know that. And we we bring a little mindfulness and it dissolves and we're back into a sense of, oh, it's okay. And Some, the Buddha said, are like lines drawn in in stone. They have more, no, in sand. There's a middle one, (laughs) in sand. So maybe some... Um, I don't know. I don't know what comes up. What comes up? I don't know. Some uh, even more worry. <laughs> Obviously, I've had a lot of worry in my life, and that's something um, that's very present for me. Worrying about this, that, and the other. It comes. It has more strength to it, and you you bring mindfulness, and it doesn't necessarily go. It has energy because we've invested energy in that. And some are like lines drawn in sa- in stone. So they have very deep-rooted um, power, fear, patterns of fear, um, lack, of, one, lack of self-worth can be one of them, patterns of, of, of uh, feeling, um, I don't know, whatever we might struggle with. Um, some of them are very subtle. You, you, some can spend years even just beginning to see. You can feel the effect, but they're so close. There's so much me. We don't, we, don't, we don't even have the sense of any space around them. They've just shaped us completely. And they, they're there and they shape the sense of ourself, the sense of our being, the sense of our worth, the sense of our expression. And so working with, one of the, working with, with this Sankharic material that emerges is a very important thing to understand in the meditative process. Because if we're just meeting the meditation, oh, I want to be peaceful, I want to be enlightened, I want to feel my, Brahma, my heart radiating as the Brahma Viharas, and we're not really acknowledging, in fact, I feel the opposite, I feel constricted, I feel limited, I feel um, wobbly, I feel tearful, I feel, um, I feel obsessed. If we're not actually able to meet what's emerging, then perhaps we don't, see, as in Rumi's poem, that there may be a doorway to the, to, the, uh, to the beyond. Our teacher called them the orphans of consciousness. I like to call them the prisoners, because sometimes they feel like our reactivity, particularly around some of what we experience, is so strong that as soon as they start to emerge in the light, we just 
shove the prison door closed again. And then we divert our attention. And, and perhaps for some of us at some point that strategy is all we can do because we don't have the capacity yet to hold what's coming up. We don't have enough confidence yet in a place of, of beingness and health and strength that we can actually work creatively and consciously with what's emerging. So for many of my years of meditation, that was, that was a strategy, and I, and I perhaps can judge that, but I can also say that's what I was capable of at that time. You know, until gradually, and not just gradually, being forced sometimes to have to face strong emotions, grief or anger, fear, not being able to move away, and then having, staying with them, those energetic manifestations, staying with them, staying with them, and noticing them changing into something else. I remember when I was uh, in the monastery and experiencing a lot of anger at my fellow nuns. Um, it was very difficult in, when I first ordained because I realized I didn't like it. <laughs> I didn't like the people I was living with, which is a very difficult situation to find yourself in, and that I had nothing in common with them, and yet there we were day and night all together in a very, um, in a way, unmature, immature context. We, it was just the, the early years of monasticism, in England, and no one had quite worked it all out, and no one knew about psychodynamics, and it was a messy, messy business in many ways. <laughs> and um, we were all very ardent and practicing and, and not very mature, not very wise. So the upshot of all of that was, was a huge upsurge, and it fed into a lot of my own early material of, of enormous rage. And that didn't really fit my sense of ideal nun, that really <laughs> de- desire to, to slaughter my other fellow sisters and, and you know, stamp them into the ground. That wasn't you know, the competitiveness that would come up, the, you know, all of that. It was very painful to have to acknowledge. But it became so fierce at one point, and there was nothing I could do. I couldn't... Well, I, well, I knew I had two options. Repression didn't work because it was too strong. Murder didn't, would not have been, I was, I had taken some precepts, so murder was not an option, although I, I, you know, it did flicker in my mind, and leaving, leaving, I had too much pride, that's it, I had too much pride to be seen walking out the door, I'm not going to be the first one walking out the door, and so I sat there with this monster, monster of rage, and I, and I realize now, I mean, it was mine, but it was, you know, it was, every, you know, it was like I was also partly a lightning rod, and there was so much rage, and just sitting there and not being able to move. You know, Ajahn Chah used to say sometimes when you can't go up, you can't go down, you can't move sideways, that's when practice really starts to emerge. You're with, you know, and that's the value of retreat and structure and discipline and limitation. Sometimes you're really up against something you can't move and that's a very very valuable moment in life when life presents us with that quality of dukkha because it's a doorway so as I was sitting with that I had enough capacity maybe enough a little bit of a thread of something that was able to just stay with it and gradually the process emerged where it was a melting down it was a melting down the energy started to melt and soften and and then it became very universal and a a lot of insight around wars (laughs) Just really knowing this is where war comes from. Just as this is it, this is the root of it. And then humility to see all of that. Um, so this, this 
these guests from beyond are, are really valuable, really valuable material. But how do we meet them? How do we meet them? This is really important. What I'd like to suggest and what has been my experience and what I'd like to explore more in myself and my own practice is to trust the innate healing power of just meeting whatever presents itself with a quality of awareness and attentiveness and just that much rather than, you know, I've got to fix it, I've got to sort it out, I've got to have a solution, I've got to, you know, there, are, there is a place for all of that, we know that, we know that. But in the meditative process, can we learn to trust when we're up with the guests, whatever their nature, can we just be the one that's at the reception desk, meeting them with this quality of presence, awareness, spaciousness, and just applying that, trusting that much. And that, that's very magical, that's very mystical, the transformative power of awareness itself. Another thing that with dealing with, working with creatively, which I, I love this from the Buddha, um, to remember in our, in our practice... Um, which was a teaching that the Buddha gave called the Awadhi Padimoka, Awada, Awada Padimoka, Awada Padimoka, Padimoka meaning the path of liberation, also means that which breaks up causes for rebirth. It's the code of conduct, the training that the Buddha laid out, d- different levels of engagement um, from monastic to lay life. The Awada Padimoka is the essential nature of it, it was the first teaching that he gave. And he gave this to a, 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 an assembly of, of 1,200 enlightened arahats that just spontaneously gathered on a full moon night. There wasn't emails, you know, saying, you know, come along, we're meeting with the Buddhists tonight. It just happened. This is what, you know, how it happens with arahats. They just, oh, we should, you know, there they were, full moon night. Um, and on this, on this night, which is now celebrated as the um, Magha Puja, Magha Puja in full moon of February in Theravada countries that celebrates this giving of this teaching. Um, you'd think, you know, what, what would the Buddha teach 1,200 enlightened arahats? I mean, you know, some esoteric, tantric, highly evolved, nothing we could understand, surely. The first line that the Buddha came out was, was patience. <laughs> Patient endurance is the highest practice, the word Tapas, which is a lovely word. Tapas means to burn away. Patient endurance is the highest practice for overcoming unskillful states. So it's not, it's what I was saying to Kathy the other day, it's not like hunkering down, you know, gritting your teeth. The long enduring mind or the long enduring heart, the heart in and of itself has that nature. That's the nature of compassion. It has that nature already. You don't have to manifest it. It happens. The willingness to be with how it is. And this, in a way, links into the heart of the Bodhisattva. 
when I first heard about the Bodhisattva vows, I nearly fell over because I thought, I can't even be with my fellow nuns for another minute, never mind 3,000 billion aeons to save every last blade of grass. I mean, forget it, you know, (laughs) to vow to come back here and, you know, keep doing this, you know. So it was very much from my my ego perspective. But our teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, said, well, look at it like this. It's like having the, the patience or the capacity to be with this moment, as it is. Can you do that? I thought, well, maybe I could do that. I could try. That's the heart of the Bodhisattva. And within that heart, uh, there's the, the feeling with, there's the, the, the karuna is the feeling with, and then the upeka, the seeing of. I see upeka more like, not so much the feeling with, but that's there, but the seeing of something of the, the vaster nature of the lawfulness of everything. The, in a way, whatever it is, the, the whole sorry story, you know, that, that manifests. It's like the, the, going to the level where it's the one manifesting the whole thing, you know, the joy, the happiness, the birth, the death, the wars, the peace, the beauty. It's all like this huge display of manifestation, sort of the eye of Shiva, so things shifting and changing and moving and shaping and emerging and dissolving and destruction. And within all of that, uh, in the traditional way of contemplating upeka, the Buddha said that all of this is lawful. All of this is following its own karmic nature. We might, from an ego perspective be freaking out all over the place this shouldn't happen that shouldn't happen it, I want to change this and I, I don't agree with that and I don't approve of this and that's how we are isn't it we all <laughs> but on some level can we can we touch even momentarily we can f- see the place and say I can't I can't approve of that but can we just momentarily touch deeply into a place where maybe maybe there's a perfection in how it is I don't like it, maybe. I don't approve of it. I want it to be different. But this is how it is. This is how it is. So... Bodhisattva heart, bringing bringing these qualities. I think what's been uh, what's been um, kind of interesting in this retreat. Uh, there is a lot of practices about generating these qualities that we could have explored, and maybe we will a little tomorrow invoking them, which is one approach which I think is incredibly useful. Um, But it seems what we've landed up doing is really trying to just get a sense of touching into the heart itself, the jitta, the the unconstricted heart, the unpatterned heart, the heart in its natural state. And to get 
without maybe even generating something out of that, but maybe just getting the subtle feeling of, of how we feel that, as a, almost as a, a, a physicality, not just as an as a academic ideology, but as a, not the jitta, as some nice um, perception that we might have, but to really almost feel it as no embodied in the physicality of the jitta. As when the jitta becomes more unbounded and, and the body starts to fill, as we've been exploring in our samadhi, fill with a sense of wellness or well-being, even if there's illness and discomfort, that can still be surrounded with a, with a, with a sort of a, um, a nectar, almost, or a, a warmth or a fluidity, spaciousness. That is the nature of the heart. So we can feel the heart in its subtle resonances when it's, when it's in touching, in contact. I'd like to also um, reflect that it's being a meditator is a bit like being a tree. And this is one of the images I have for Bodhisattva. So trees are wonderful and we know what happens when they're all going to disappear, which possibly could be on the cars. You know, the, the great forests being chopped down. We, we, we don't think they're very important, but guess what's going to happen when they've gone? We'll know how important they are. And what does a tree do? Well, nothing much, really. <laughs> it's just there, beautiful, offers shelter, and you know, maybe birds come and perch in it. And, but one of the things that the trees does, which is more unseen, is that it takes in the poisons, the, the carbon dioxide that we can't breathe, and it exudes oxygen, the, the trees exude, which, which keeps, you know, allows us all, as we know, in our planet, to be healthy. And so as a meditator, it might not seem that we're doing a lot. You know, we're not sort of out there maybe all the time on the front line, but we're like trees. We're allowing these things to come through, to be noticed, the poisons sometimes, poisonous drives, to be noticed and to be healed, to be touched, to be released, and then what exudes, what can come forth is, 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 is health, health-giving, vitality-giving, confidence-giving. I think of uh, Mr. Mandela, um, ex-President Mandela, as a, a, a beautiful tree, and uh, just contemplating his life and wanting to bring him into the room tonight because of our connection with South Africa, and what's uh, living there for 10 years and through the political changes, social changes, vast changes, and seeing that happen, there's been lots of problems, but seeing that happen um, with a reasonable amount of um, intactness, that something, it held, you know, it's, it's like it didn't, the, the whole country didn't, as many people predicted, go into a bloodbath, it didn't implode, it didn't go into a war. It somehow transited it, <coughs> and is still transiting through this process uh, in a miraculous and incredible way. And that's not to deny the many, many problems, but one of the, one of the um, people that I attribute that to is, is Mr. Mandela. I mean, sure, there are many other consciousness that supported that, but here you have someone in, that was in prison for 27 years, um, in Robin Island and other places, which if you see the cell, which, which I've done, it's, it's not bigger than this platform we're sitting on. And he turned, he transmuted that experience and was, was belittled in numerous ways, numerous, numerous ways. And he, he was, in that experience, you think, well, naturally it would be understandable if someone came out really bitter and twisted and 
angry and warlike and want to go shoot everyone who's responsible. I'd understand it. I'm sure we all would. What did he do? In that he, he really, one of, one of the a little thing to, to mention, just to give you the quality of the person, is that he decided to learn Afrikaans so he could better understand the mindset of his, of his jailers. And so he'd get books delivered, poetry delivered, literature delivered, and, and, he'd, and, you know, and he learned the language. That's one thing he did. But what, what he came out with, with the tone or the vibration that he came out with when he finally got released, gave a tone that helped the transition, which was one of inclusiveness, forgiveness, warmth, fatherliness, the father of a nation of a wounded child. And this is, a, you know, the power of one person transforming and an enormous amount. We should take confidence from that because in many ways he's also very ordinary. He's also very extraordinary and very king-like. Returning to the marketplace, as we will be doing with bliss bestowing hands, is a Zen saying, it's beautiful. To, that when we go back into contact with the world around us, from a little bit maybe more increased confidence in our ability just to rest in our heartfulness, to be able to touch the world with these bliss bestowing hands. This is one of my very favorite pieces of poetry. I'd like to finish our contemplation tonight. T.S. Eliot. Every poem is an epitaph. And any action is a step to the block, to the fire, down the sea's throat or to an illegible stone and that is where we start. We die with the dying. See, they depart and we go with them. We are born with the dead. See, they return and bring us with them. The moment of the rose and the moment of the yew tree are of equal duration. A people without history is not redeemed from time, for history is a pattern of timeless moments. So, while the light fails on a winter's afternoon in a secluded chapel, history is now, and England. With the drawing of this love and the voice of this calling, we shall not cease from exploration. And the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Through the unknown, remembered gate, when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning. At the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall and the children in the apple tree, not known because not looked for, but heard half heard in the stillness between two waves of the sea. 
quick, now, here, now, always. A condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And all shall be well. And all manner of things shall be well. When the tongues of flame are enfolded into the crowned knot of fire, and the fire and the rose are one.